Welcome to the Integrated Schools Podcast. I'm Andrew, a white dad from Denver. And I'm Courtney, a white mom from Los Angeles. Episode five, Interview with a Skeptic. We're joined by Chris Stewart, a black education advocate, father, and former school board member. This one's heavy, but it's really important. Courtney, how did you come to have this conversation with Mr. Stewart? So Chris has spoken out a lot on the national scene, and uh, much of what he says is a critique of integration, at least in the ways that it's currently done, which maybe we could argue is more about desegregation. Anyway, I think it's really important for us as white people who care about this issue to listen and listen hard. So I reached out to him and we've had a number of really good conversations about this stuff. Yeah, so like from the start, you guys seem to be on pretty opposite sides of this debate. Like we're integrated schools. He's pretty outspokenly against integration. But I guess one of the reasons I like this conversation so much and why it's so important is because I guess, you know, fundamentally, I'm not sure we are on opposite sides. I mean, certainly there are policy issues where we might not all agree, but, you know, what we're focused on at integrated schools is not really the policy, but it's the underlying stuff that allows us to continue to make choices that have negative consequences for everybody, especially communities of color. Yeah, I I tried really hard not to get in the weeds on particular policies with this interview, but really to highlight how we as white and our privileged parents have made choices that are problematic. And Chris is really good. He's really clear, maybe even harsh about pointing (laughs) those out. But, you know, I appreciate that. I appreciate that immensely, actually. Yes, I, I think it's safe to say he does not pull any punches. <laughs> right. um, I w- it's not always easy stuff to hear, but it is, it's really important to listen. I mean, look, Integrated Schools is largely a white privileged organization talking to white privileged people, right? And we do that because we recognize that the current state of segregation is a problem created by white people. Yeah, right? Like racism, integration is really a white people problem. But we have to listen and engage and be in conversation with people of color, with people who might not agree with everyone, and especially folks with whom we've done little historically to build any trust. Because yeah. otherwise, it you know it's not really integration, right? It's just another form of desegregation that ultimately isn't building the kind of society that we believe in. So this listening needs to happen now. I mean, it should have already happened, but right. it definitely needs to happen now. And it's not going to be easy or straightforward, but that still needs to be our goal, period. Totally. All right, let's hear the interview. Welcome, everyone. Today, we're talking with Chris Stewart, who is a former school board member, nationally known education activist, and the chief executive at the Wayfinder organization. Chris is dedicated to, quote, amplifying ideas that increase educational opportunity for Black people, families, and communities by challenging the dominant discourse about Black people, our students, and our schools. Chris, thank you. I'm so glad you're here. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you. This is great. So I kind of want to just jump right in. When we last spoke, you said that you used to be an integration evangelist, but you are not an integration evangelist anymore. (laughs) Can you explain why not? Well, number one, that's an understatement by far. Um, (laughs) So I often say this, you know, I was uh, education integration uh, evangelist until I got mugged. And the mugging took place over uh, several years where I really got involved in some local changing of school boundaries and school rules to get some of our schools integrated. And it just went badly. 
Um, and I learned along the way a lot of what I believed to be true about liberals and progressive people who talk often about integration just didn't work out in reality, in terms of when we would try and change boundaries, we would get pushback. And when we would keep pushing those boundaries, we would get serious pushback from parents, from the elected officials that you know worked with them and represented them. And um, there was just a very strong social power to defeat most of the things that we were trying as a school district in, in Minneapolis public schools to integrate the schools. There was just overt and um, subverted uh, activity to stop us from moving kids around or getting, you know, like a handful of kids of color into the, the Tony schools that white kids were dominant in. It just was a sad series of disappointments in the people who talk about integration the most. I'm not surprised. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have to say, this is part of my problem is that I was surprised. I really believed in um, progressives and liberals at least on these things. I thought there were just a certain number of things that we were just clear on, like uh, racial integration and equity. And I just thought we agreed on all those things. And when it came to the integration part, it just really wasn't true. So when there was all of this pushback, I'm sure I could probably guess at all of the reasons for the pushback, but do you want to kind of summarize why people were resisting the rezoning? The, The number one through line that everybody wrote to me which was um, I bought my house specifically so my kids could go to these schools because I value education. And then on, that was the, the common opening paragraph. And, and then after that, it was a series of things like, my child is so special. My child um, deserves the, the level of quality education she's getting right now. If you make us move to a school where none of the parents care about education the way that we do, we will pull our children out and put them in private school. And, and mind you, these are not like the super crazy conservative parents. These are, are Obama voting left of left, left of center on every issue, writing a school board member basically saying those people don't care about education the way that we do and we don't want our kids mixed up in that. Um, the fact that they're in schools with low test scores should tell you something right away that our kids don't belong there with them. We will use all of our social power to get you out of office, to get you off the board. Mm-hmm. Uh, We will call the mayor. We will call the speaker of the house. We will do whatever it takes because you're making a grave mistake by not listening to us. I actually want to say one of the ones that surprised me the most. And so every time I say that something surprised me, you having a PhD in whiteness should probably not be surprised about what's about to come out of my mouth. But these literally were surprises to me, right? Like things that I, I learned how naive I actually was about people in the state of racial politics in a very liberal city. But one person who wrote me basically said, I volunteered once at one of those schools over north in North Minneapolis is our black side of town, if there is one. Um, And she was saying, you know, I I visited the schools and I even volunteered in one. And those people care more about their clothes and their shoes than they do about their kids' education. And I just can't mix my daughter up with that. Signed by, and it had her name, Dr. So-and-so, a professor at the University of Minnesota. And I'm thinking to myself, this is problematic on so many levels. Like the first one is just the the level of backwardness in what you just wrote to me. But the worst part is that there are actually college students taught by a person who is too culturally insulated to understand how backward she actually is. Yeah, I'm not surprised. (laughs) (laughs) 
I'm, I'm horrified. I have big feelings about it, but surprise isn't one of those feelings. One thing that is, um, is always so fascinating to me in, in a, you know, horrified sort of train wreck kind of way is, is the narrative around who, who cares about education, which parents care about education. And in some of the, the language around parent engagement is so incredibly white or, you know, it's either really paternalistic or, you know, it's all, it's, but it's very framed in like caring as a parent about education looks like this. And there's, there's sort of one way to show up. Yeah. I mean, and it's, it's kind of like the hidden rules of being middle-class or the hidden rules of being in the social, you know, economic mainstream or whatever. Yeah. But it's actually not the way that if we care about our public institutions that we should be going about working in a pluralistic society where not everybody is white middle class with two white college educated parents. That's our standard and that's our gold standard. Then our education system should be shut down tomorrow because that's no longer the mainstay of who's who's served in our public schools. That's right. Um, and, and to be very honest with you, I think it's in doubt whether or not we share a common public institution called the public schools and whether we should like whether black and brown families should even be interested in sharing school districts with people who are so pampered, privileged and culturally insulated to the point where they're almost juvenile about their standing in the world. They don't understand the sense of superiority that they still carry with them. That is updated, but actually no different than their ancestors and their forebears who Cap made us captives, right? So the idea that we've come so far is just really, it doesn't bear out in the savage racial economic politics of education. It just really doesn't bear out that we've come so far. In some ways, there's just this soft social power that still takes place amongst white moms mostly, but the husbands that love them too, who come along for the ride to kind of dominate the, the landscape of how public school happens, like how, how the, the game board and the, the pieces are played and how little islands of privilege just get set up, if not in a whole school or a whole district or a whole zip code, at least within a unit of a school where, you know, the smart, good white kids are kind of kept away from the savage general population. You know, I'm being dramatic in the way that I, I, I'm talking right now. And there's a purpose to that. The purpose really is the situation itself is that dramatic. Like the inequities bear out really material results that are way more dramatic than the way that I'm talking right now. Yeah, I mean, I actually don't disagree with you. I guess the kind of slipperiness of racism is in a way what we're talking about, right? That, Mm -hmm. you know, it just, it it doesn't have to be carrying a torch in Charlottesville. (laughs) No, actually, that's my preferred way of it showing up right because then there's no mystery at that (laughs) i'm like okay so you've got a tiki torch i see that we're done here (laughs) but i know where i stand with you (laughs) yeah you're making it pretty clear it's the other ones who smother you in your sleep and you know kill you with supposed kindness that are actually more deadly than anyone So you have talked a lot about like funding white privilege and white parent power in in a way that's very specific about how that affects families of color. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. One of the things that we've talked a lot about is, 
you know, this idea of you have to get the best things for your kid. You have to get it all for your kid. But but there's a disconnect with how, you know, securing advantage for your kid actually affects other kids in the district, in the system, in America, whatever. So I, I wonder if you if you want to draw those lines for us between getting everything for my, you know, white kid and how that affects other kids. I'll turn it the other way around and is just that historically marginalized people, people who are descended from folks that are, you know, hundreds of years behind the dominant population because of oppression and because of really bad social constructs that were put in our places barriers. We have a different mission with our children than white parents do. White parents' mission is to suck up all of the possible advantage and and power like it's gravy on a biscuit and give it to their kids and and shove it down their throats and just continuously overstuff them with, with as much privilege as possible because if they don't, they might become victims to the browning of America. Whether they know consciously or subconsciously that that's what they're doing, they're at war with us, right? And these are the, this is the same spirit that does this today is the same spirit that put Indians through boarding schools and put blacks into schools without books or water or adequate facilities and whatnot. And always in, at every turn found a good reason and rationale for it happening. Even if they weren't directly involved, there was a good reason to put Indians into boarding schools, you know, you know, save the child, kill the Indian. And now it's like, you know, um, together and unequal is the new thing that white folks are trying to replace it with. All this integration stuff is a trick. It's a trick to ease the conscience of white folks while they still continue, even in those supposedly integrated situations, suck up all of everything in terms of the advantage, the best classes, the best teachers, the the advanced, the honors, the special rooms, the special places within a building, special places within a district. Let's control the school board. They are at war with the best interest of my children of color who live in my household, who I'm actually trying to raise to not work for you all, who I'm trying to actually raise to own a part of this United States that wasn't that hasn't been intended for them to, to, to own. I'm trying to beat history and white folks are trying to beat the future. The future is of color in the United States. And whether white folks know it or not, these little soft interactions that they have with things in like the power of how the public schools are administrated or whatnot are a part of the whiteness portfolio of keeping power. They could be liberal, they could be conservative, they could be in the middle, but it all shakes out the same. They come out on top in the end, no matter what political persuasion they are. And it's just weird how that happens. I don't know how dumb we're supposed to be as people of color to believe that it's just accidental that the schools look the way that they do or that these populations of people just kind of coalesce together in cohorts and and um, they have phone trees and organizing meetings and social events together, and they form social bonds and social capital. Their social capital becomes compounded over time and over place, and it becomes a stronghold that's very hard to shake loose. And then we're given this like grand offer that maybe we could integrate with some of you all and actually do what, <laughs> what was done to us before, which is just like have our kids die a thousand cultural deaths because you're just looking to integrate us into white normed buildings and schools so that we have even yet another challenge. So what you are doing in terms of integrating into a school where you're actually ending up the minority in a, in a school or whatnot is not the way that I normally see it happen. And that to me is more honest and it's more brave and it's 
kind of like race trading in a way. <laughs> race trading? <laughs> yeah, I mean, in a way, you're kind of like you're you're kind of you're not with the program when you're willing to do that. You know, you're not with the white program as much as you should be. Um, you know, you better watch out. You might have your white card pulled at some point um, <laughs> for doing it that way. Um, because that doesn't leave the same structures of power in place. It can't. You know, it puts you in a situation where you're not actually seeking dominance. Well, it can. I mean, you know, that's part of the worry with this. When white people show up to integrating spaces, there's bad things that happen. There's colonizing that happens, even with the best intentions. That's true. So there's a lot to keep in check here. In one of our first conversations, you sort of gave me this checklist of conditions to be met before you would be willing to talk about integration again. <laughs> and I really loved your checklist. Can you share it? I don't know if it mattered in your head as a checklist the way I heard it, but. Yeah, I don't know that I would be able to recreate it completely, but I mean, there's some things that stand out to me as constants. Like the first one is the onus for any schemes or remedies to dis desegregation or integration, the onus of all of the remedies have to be on white people, not on black people. So that means that if there's going to be any moving, uh, shutting down of things or whatnot, the, all of those type of plans have to hold black people and, and people of color, period, harmless. Meaning we don't lose our teachers. We don't lose our buildings. We don't get put our kids on buses for an hour and a half to two hours to ship them off to white normed places. The opposite happens. Like it, it, like the the new movement for integration has to be predicated on white sacrifice. Like white people actually have to give up something to make it work this time. Because we tried it the other way, and we've never recovered from you know the white liberal remedies of the 1970s that kind of completely dismantled black education and black educational capital. Right. So this time around, it's got to be the opposite. If there's anything to lose, white people have to lose it first, or else we're, you know, we're just not interested. I am talking for the black people who actually were holding the bag when we had all of our losses the last time around when urban schools that used to be good black schools were shut down, when good black teachers were let go and good, good black principals were demoted to be janitors, when we started forming education deserts, because of course there couldn't be any good schools that white people would want to go to in the hood. So we're going to shut down the educational capital and the institutions within the black communities and then ship the people out and, and not even think about what message that sends to people of color and to white people. Like, like what a like superiority mind boost. Like you guys can't be great until you come be with us and maybe we'll let you be with us or not. So that's the first thing. The second thing is really, it can't be like white normed inclusion that passes for integration. It can't be second class integration where, you know, I'm tolerated in your building and my kids are allowed to be with you all or whatnot. Cause actually I don't have that level of insufficient self-esteem, right? Like I don't need my kids to understand the world in terms of they can't be good unless they're with you all. There is no gold standard that has been set for me in my life. And, or for anybody who thinks like me or parents of color who actually want to raise healthy well-adjusted people of color. So it can't be like white normed inclusion. You and I have disagreed on this other point a little bit more, but I'm actually not 100% sold, but a little bit more sold on the idea of diverse schools. Schools where there isn't a dominant, like it isn't white normed, but there are 
multiple kind of a, a plural population of people so that you don't have any clear idea that we're being integrated into your thing, but we're all sharing a common territory, kind of like the United States. Um, so that's another big one for me too. The other one is you can attack white choice, but you can't really attack my choice, right? Because we have been exiled and because we have been booted out of the circle of power and kept out by the way that racial, economic, educational politics work, um, we have had to develop alternatives to the mainline system. So for some of us, like all of this talk around let's opt out and let's stop the privatization and corporatization and end the charter schools and all that stuff is some of the whitest bullshit I've ever heard in my life. And I just don't want to have any part of it. It's like, it's like selling my people cultural suicide, like telling us the only thing we can do is the mainline schools and trying to create boogeymen out of anything that would be an alternative. That's not to say that I think people who are offering um, alternatives are all saints and they're angels or whatnot. I'm just saying it's our call. It's actually no one else's call. Right. So don't get in the way of any choices I'm making because you have some college level understanding of neoliberalism and privatization and all the shit that people talk about that actually doesn't solve my Monday problem. My problem is you guys can argue about all of that, but where do I put my kid on Monday? And if you're telling me, oh, I should take one for the team and put them into this crappy district school that you've already abandoned because I want to like, you know, kind of sign on to some weird loyalty oath with the state schools, the same state that is killing us in the streets, over punishing us in the courts, mass incarcerating us, putting us on welfare through these jacked up schools. Like we're supposed to have some sort of weird loyalty in Trump world to the state and to the government of all people because we don't want to privatize. So all of that is just to say, don't get in the way of my choices. I'm choosing a charter school. I'm choosing a district school. I'm choosing a private school, whatnot. You do not have to like it at this point. But after 400 years of white bullshit, I think we get to choose now. And it doesn't matter whether the good white people of affluent cities like Seattle and Portland and Los Angeles and elsewhere don't like choice. You know, let's be real. They don't like choice for us. They love choice for themselves, like the choice to be able to pop onto Zillow and buy a million dollar house so that you get the good school. See, that's a choice, right? That's it's right. not a choice all of us have. You know, we've talked at length about the charter school stuff. And to us at integrated schools, charters are just one of a billion ways that white people can segregate. And so it's not my business to tell a black or brown parent where to send their kid when we, we've set the fires. I'm going to switch gears just for a second. I, I think that I'm having a little bit of confusion. You know, one of your conditions for integration is that white folks need to do the sacrificing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that looks like busing. That looks like opting in to integrating spaces, not just being real nice to the five kids you've allowed to come into your white space, right? Mm -hmm. But I guess what's, what I struggle with is this idea of sacrifice. Like, uh, you know, are there not things that white kids and families get from this experience? It might be reprioritizing, you know, there's, there's trade-offs, but when we talk about this only as a sacrifice, I feel like you're kind of perpetuating that same sort of narrative. The narrative that there are some sacrifices that would have to be made? No, like, I think that there are things that white kids get from these experiences. I absolutely agree with that. 
Like, I do think that it would make for better people, for better white people, for sure, to have kind of direct contact with other folks that they come to know and come to like and appreciate and be friends with and some not be friends with or whatever. But yeah, yeah, that all makes sense to me, right? Like, I get that. But you can't read books about people hoarding privilege and not realize that the opposite of hoarding is actually just taking as much as you need, which means if you already are overprivileged, you do have to give some things up, right? There's no way out for me. And listen, I can't tell other people what to do. There's no moral way for me out of being overprivileged that doesn't require you deprivileging yourself in some ways. And that's what the word sacrifice means. I don't mean that you're going to be some sort of martyr for sending your kids to some of these schools. But when I talk about this too, I'm just talking about the big sacrifices that people of color had to make for the last round of big integration thinking, right? The sacrifices were pretty large. We sacrificed our educators, our schools, our educational capital in our own neighborhoods, our ability to have pride and, and, and have something close by. What happens when you get on a bus and you go somewhere for an hour and a half? Well, no one really discovered that, well, it's harder for parents to build social capital with each other because it's so far away. It's harder for parents to be involved. It's harder to go to football games and, you know, participate in things. That's got to be reversed now, right? I'd love to see some people coming from our here in, say, for instance, the Twin Cities. I'd love to see some really honest and serious people to come into the cities from those white first ring suburbs. You know who's doing it right now? Because <laughs> we have a choice program that allows people, if they so want to integrate schools, to do it. What's really interesting is we set up a program that allows kids to go out to the suburbs for integration purposes and for kids to open enroll into the city for integration purposes. And what's real interesting is black kids from the suburbs are opting in to the very black schools in the city and white kids in the city are opting to go out to the, the white suburbs. Again. Not surprising to you, right? So I, I guess I'm sensitive what you're saying is not to sell it as like, oh my God, this is such an awful thing. You're going to have to give up everything in the world. I get that. But you want to be honest about the fact that if you're looking for a way to stay you know, privileged and to stay advantaged and a safe clinical way to make this happen where you just end up somewhere else with all of the advantages that you have right now, I'm not entirely sure of how that happens. <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah, I, I just don't have anything for you. Like I'm, I'm empty on a plan where you maintain the same level of power and privilege and first placeness and don't lose anything or have to change. I like what you say. The word trade-off makes sense, but you know people don't experience as a, a okay trade-off. I don't know if you know that. I'm, I don't want to speak for you. It just seems to me in talking to a lot of people, they do see it as, as needing to make sacrifices. Yeah. Like it's small things like, you know, who's going to come to your kid's birthday party all of a sudden is different than who doesn't now. How are they going to get there is different than what happens right now. Are you going to feel as comfortable letting your kids go to their new cohort of friends, birthday parties and whatnot? And how are you going to experience that drop off? There, there are things that will be different for you. And I'm hoping that anybody who pitches it to you is kind of having like a realistic system of how you share experience. <laughs> like, how does this happen? How do you make this? Like, you know, in your situation, you're probably in a different situation than someone else's, you know, who's got more privilege right now. And they might want to know from you how you're surviving that. What you've told me is it's all cool. It's all fine. No, yeah, it's, it's not all fine. It's hard and it's messy and it's complicated. And it's about 
building relationships with people that you probably wouldn't have otherwise. And, you know, our neighborhood is largely Latinx. So we have a really serious language hill to climb between me and my, a lot of my kids' friends, not all of them. Yeah, no, it's complicated. It's really complicated. Well, I, I actually wouldn't want to scare anybody off. But the way that people talk to me is in terms of what do I do? You know, when I was a school board member and we were proposing these things, there were very common questions that people would ask and feedback that people would have. And they mostly um, revolved around, am I a bad person if I don't want to sign my kid up for and then name this list of things that are like sacrifices or differences that would take place? I literally had a parent say to me that she tried it once and no one came to her daughter's birthday party, even though she sent everybody multiple invitations, multiple times, no one showed up. And I just couldn't put my kid through that for another year. She literally told me that. And I came home and told my wife that like these birthday situations are real serious for some folks, right? They're really serious. <laughs> Seemed a very important thing that I wouldn't have thought about before it was brought to my attention. But, you know, but like, it, it's just one of those things where you don't even realize, you know, how people interact in the world might not look the same. And, and so birthday parties is another one of those. And it takes time. Like It's really important, too, that, you know, you don't oversimplify because people are in very different situations depending on what district they're in and what part of the country. There's a common thing that's going on, but the solutions might be different in a big city versus a smaller city or whatnot. But w what fascinates me about this is the, the number of adjustments I have to make with my own kids. We were like that family that was never going to have a minivan. And we have a minivan now. <laughs> and part of the utility of a minivan is that all the doors open without you having to try. And when you have birthday parties and gatherings and things, those doors are opening often because you're picking up lots of kids to go do something, right? Not everybody has transportation. In my kids' school, there's always going to be, if we want them to have successful gatherings and birthday parties or whatnot, there's always going to be a part of the work that's on us to make happen, thus the damn minivan. There is work to be done, though, that isn't just hard policy work, isn't just work of like getting people into buildings or changing school boundaries so that you make people do these things. There is another part, like the resistance to integration that I experienced from people is very in large part social. And we were trying to fix it with policy solutions. And our policy solutions always were beat by the social capital in the social situation. It was being defeated by that part. And there's nobody who concentrates on that part of the work. We were all bureaucrats, politicians, and, and you know, elected people. So I don't know how you change the hearts and minds of people. I mean, I'm trying. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, it's a mighty, mighty fight. <laughs> well, I mean, all this work is really peri-political, right, that, that we're trying to do. Because policy A is really different in different places. But the narratives that white people use to support the choices that they're making and where they live and where they send their kids to school and how they show up, those are all outside of politics. And if those you know, rules, regulations, and zones apply and I don't like them, I can opt out of them. Yeah, well, when I said to you before in a previous conversation, I think I, I really love the idea that people get together and they talk these things through with each other and they start bonding and build up their own social capital around these issues, because I think that's the way that you have like progress and social change is when people start taking it on themselves and start working with their friends and families, but they have to eventually get to the part where they're willing to challenge their own. They're willing to challenge their neighbors, their community, their neighborhoods, 
on these issues because what I have seen is that the, the group that will be dominant in this discussion and be resistant are always much better armed than the lambs who come into the debate trying to find the kumbaya for everybody and, you know, let's be into integration or whatnot. They, they almost look like doe-eyed children sometimes in how they don't understand the level of kind of social sophistication of the people who are resisting and the way that they exercise their power. They have you outmanned before you get there unless you're pretty well versed in things. Like and, and your, your click has to be pretty solid. I don't know about everywhere else, but I know in Minneapolis for sure, there's a lot of talk about integration and all that. But the warriors on the side of actually making it happen when things go wrong or when the policies aren't going to go our way or whatnot are super not armed. <laughs> they're, they're like like outmatched by far. What would you suggest? What do you, how, how do they get armed? I think, you know, what I said before, like you guys are on your way there with them actually feeling, you know, confident with each other, like having some backup. People always fear like jumping out there and being the only person and going to the board meeting and saying the thing when no one's going to be behind them or organizing things and realizing that nine out of 10 of the people that they live around and see on a regular basis are going to be against them. That requires you to feel like you have a core group of homies who are always going to be there with who see eye to eye, just like you do because the other group is meeting, you know, don't let's not fool ourselves. They're, they're having little book meetings and talking about Diane Ravitch and opting out of testing and, you know, privatization and all of that stuff too. And they, Oh, by the way, they've perfected the language of being for integration. So when they come to fight a, a battle on boundaries or changing school times or something like that, they have a plausibility of being for it while they're killing it. And they don't have anybody to stand right next to them and say, no, 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 no. We're like you. We understand you. We know what you're talking about and you're wrong. Mm -hmm. And we're going to stand our ground. But it does require some critical mass of people. People have told me to my face, my God, I'm so frustrated with this. I would love to show up tonight and say something. I know exactly what they're saying and they're talking about. and It's ridiculous and I hate it, blah, blah. But... And the big butt is, I don't want to be by myself. Yeah, no, that's real. Did you see the video that I sent you? It's a video of a woman who pulled her kids midway through elementary school and is driving them across town and went for the first time to the school board. And she stood up and said, like, in support of both school integration and calling out school board members by name, like so-and-so, I am a constituent and I do believe in school mm-hmm. integration, mm-hmm. And, you know, and I'm doing this with my kid. And I mean, if you found a way to help her be more confident in that situation, I feel like that's God's work right there. Because when I was on a school board to have that exact situation happen, that person show up would have been, it would have made all the difference in the world in many of the meetings that I was in. We only needed one or two or three people to show up with a very strong statement who had the right social background to be heard mm-hmm. and to be deemed credible to make changes in what we were doing. And it was not there so often. So, and the times that it was, my God, was I super thankful on the nights when that person did show up. Yeah. We need to give you more of those people. I mean, you just talked about kind of the code for being for integration while actually trying to kill integration. Can, mm-hmm. can you point out some of those codes? You know, I think it's, it's, it may not be for people explicitly saying they're for integration, but they're, they're implying that they are by talking about 
many of the problems with our schools are because of poverty and segregation. Our schools are so segregated. And that's, we can't blame schools for all the ills, you know, kids and, and, you know, whatever's going on in them. And it's just the segregation and the poverty or whatnot without any real kind of solutions to like, and because of that, I'm going to take my kid across town and put them in, in a school that adds my social capital to that school. Um, and they, they talk through that very progressive kind of talk track, but the way that they show up to actually work against what's actually coming out of their mouth is to defeat boundaries that would, would end or at least eradicate much of the segregation in a, in a city like Minneapolis. You know, we sought to move boundaries two or three blocks any direction, and that would cut out a certain group of white people who would suddenly have to go to a different school. And you would have sworn that we were just attempting to, like, defeat white people forever. Um, and they wouldn't show up angry and hostile like the things you hear on, like, This American Life. They would write us very long, logical letters that had all of the value signaling a progressive could possibly put in a letter. And what they would be asking us to do would be something that was seriously, seriously inequitable. Half the time, I feel like I could talk about this all day. And then the other half the time, I want to take a deep sigh and have a margarita or something. I don't know. Well, my message to people across the country is don't talk about it. Don't tell me anymore. Don't talk me to death anymore. Because I've heard all of the like kind of like pro integration, super liberal stuff. I've heard all of it. And most of it's bullshit in my mind. I just want to be real about it. I don't believe any of it. I think most of it is just another form of white power trying to make itself okay with its kind of degradation of, of people of color. Um, through systems, but it's it's a guilt-solving situation. But what I do respect is action. So words and action are two different things. So don't talk me to death, but let me see what you do with your kids. And when I was a school board member, I think I've told you this, I'd go to a lot of schools that were very, very black, and they would be considered racially isolated and whatnot. And in every one of those schools, there was like one or two or a handful of white kids, and it would always perplex me. I would like, you know, spend more time with them. I'd talk to them. And I'd always be thinking to myself, like, what is going on with your parents that they like, they're okay with this, right? Like, what is, I, I need to know more. I actually need to know more about the psychology of those white parents versus the ones we've been talking about for this, like, you know, this entire podcast. Like, what is going on in your mind when you're okay with your little white kid being okay in, like, I mean, a school full of non-white people? And I think I told you, you know, I can't make gross generalizations, which I can, actually, but I'm not going to. But, but <laughs> oftentimes, I would think it would be, like, younger white parents, punk rock parents, parents who had grown up in those same schools themselves and, like, you know, just were okay with it, weren't going to abandon the city because all of a sudden their kids were school age. Uh, meanwhile, Minneapolis at the time was tracking the number of parents who move out of Minneapolis when their kids turn age four. And it was a big number. You're cool with the city and all the stuff that you have, the food, the eats, everything, until your child hits kindergarten, pre-kindergarten, and then you move out to the suburbs. I don't know. What is your advice to white people who want to be these punk rock parents (laughs) that you're talking about? How do you need us to show up? You know, it's a great question. First of all, I love my punk rock white people. Advice. Here's the thing. I think the last thing that I said really is the most important thing, which is don't just like do book clubs and talk about these things. That's a good start. But you have to actually know that the activism part doesn't begin until you're willing to challenge the systems 
and challenge your neighbors and challenge your friends and not become a wilting violet in rooms and places and spaces where people are saying the opposite of what you're saying. There has to be a way for people to be ready, to be actionary. doesn't mean you have to go in and piss everybody off. doesn't mean that you have to always be like in people's grill and in their face, especially if that's not a winning strategy with your neighbors and your friends. It does mean that there needs to be some level of commitment. Like if you think about the abolition movement or the suffrage movement or the civil rights movement, there were always that large mass group of lukewarm people, but there were always that that smaller group of people that were hot on fire. And the hot on fire people are the ones who get things started. They get the ball rolling. They push people out of their comfort zones. This issue kind of needs that for the white side of things. Really, right? Like not everybody's ready to do that. Not everybody's prepared, but there has to be some sense of getting people to the point where they will do the challenging. When people of color step to the mic and really kind of push back on these things, when I'm saying what I'm saying right now, well, that's just, you know, there you go again. You know, you people are always about race. It's just a race thing. And you're just a black guy. It's always the black guy stuff. Or, you know, it's always white people, this white people, that. It's different when white people show up, right? Because that's off the table. Yeah. That's just completely off the table. Now it's, now it's, you know, man on man defense. Y'all just do your thing. And I get to eat popcorn and watch what happens. But to tell you the truth, I'm rooting for you, but I'm betting on the other team. <laughs> I know. Well, we need to like just schedule a time to talk in a decade. In a decade and see how it goes. Well, you know, we, we, this is that time a decade ago. We've been in this time for millennia. This is, right. you know, I, I think it's different now. I'm having conversations now that I couldn't have had when my kids were starting kindergarten a decade ago. Ooh, Courtney, you are hopeful and I love you for I it. I am hopeful. I'm going to be watching you. <laughs> I am hopeful. I am with you. But, uh, you know, trying to be somewhat realistic too. I appreciate the time to talk about it. I appreciate the work that you're doing. Um, anytime that you want me to share my cynicism, I am happy to share it. <laughs> it's like if uh, feedback is a gift, I'm a philanthropist. So just know that. And and um, let's do it again. Let's keep talking. I'll be interested to see the success and the progress specifically here in the Twin Cities, but in other places yep. also. Well, damn, Andrew. We warned you, he doesn't mess around. <laughs> like what is so important about this discussion is that is that we have to talk about integration, but we can't only talk about integration, right? Like we have to talk about how we integrate. Right. And I think like at the baseline, mechanically, that, you know, this is white families stepping into schools that serve black and or brown students. White families have to do that work. Yes. But also how we show up can't be white centering. It can't be moving black and brown bodies into white spaces or turning existing black and brown spaces white. Yeah. Can't be white normed inclusion. Absolutely. Oh, I love that part. Yeah. yeah. I mean, look, in the end, like, I don't know that there is a real disconnect between Stuart's vision and ours. I think there's a question of how likely we are to succeed. And, <laughs> and you know, I, I mean, I would argue he's fully justified in not waiting for us to come around and do this better. He doesn't have much hope because we haven't given communities of color any reason to hope that we will ever get better at this. That's right. But as he said, as PhDs in whiteness, <laughs> like, we have to be the ones to do the work. You ended your interview on a hopeful note. I am hopeful that we can change hearts and minds, even if it takes generations. But what I know we can't do is sit back and accept the status quo, right? If not us, then who? If not now, then when?
That's right. And I love that Chris said that he was rooting for us, even even though he might be betting against us. Yes. So, dear listeners, what did you guys think? Record us a voice memo. Let us know. Email it to us. Hello at integratedschools.org or find us on any of the social media channels at Integrated Schools. Yeah. And thanks to everyone who has emailed, rated, reviewed, subscribed. We really appreciate your feedback. It actually means a lot because this work is both intensely scary and, and important. And yes. we are grateful to be in this with you all as we try to know better and do better. For sure. See you next time. 